What we look for within our professors, first and foremost, is people that love to teach and, and that, that are passionate about teaching, because that, we believe, is actually one of the fundamental failings of higher education in general, that higher education has biased toward research uh, scholarship and um, therefore biased away from the actual education of students. Gun and welcome to the Future Podcast. Today's guest is the Managing Director of Brand and Creative at the Minerva Project. Now, if you're not already familiar with it, the Minerva Project is a new university program designed to reinvent higher education. And it sounds really exciting. So if you're interested in teaching or education, then do not skip this one. He tells Chris about graduating from UCLA's design program and how starting a zine landed him a job at one of the most prestigious design firms in the world. Beyond the proverbial origin story, the two talk in depth about the problems with America's education system, and they get into the why, what, and how this radical new school, through its unconventional methods, is going head-to-head with the Ivy Leagues. I don't throw this word around a lot, but this episode is fantastic, and it gives me hope for the future generations to come. Please enjoy our enlightening conversation, with Io Seligman. Uh, I appreciate you uh, doing this call with me, this podcast, and I'm very excited to talk to you about what your your current project is. But uh, for everybody uh, that might not who, know who you are, uh, can you introduce yourself and give us a little description or how you describe yourself to the world? Uh, sure. Um, my name is Io Seligman. I'm uh, currently the managing director of brand and creative at uh, the Minerva Project. And uh, Minerva is an educational innovator uh, that established back in 2012 uh, a a new university program that that sought to completely reinvent uh, higher education. Yeah, it's uh, very topical and it's where I think I'm going to spend most of this conversation with you today is about Minerva. I'm very passionate about education, and it's very interesting that that uh, this has been many years in the works and how it's coinciding with the pandemic that we're all trying to sort out, especially as the impacts ripple through um, all sectors of education. But before we go there, I want to go back into your past a little bit because your past is very interesting, and I think it might be illuminating to some of the things that we're going to talk about. Um, I see that you've been spending or spent a good portion of your career in in branding and design and worked at Lander and Associates. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Can you tell us about your background and what you did for many years before um, becoming the managing director of brand and creative at um, the Minerva Project? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, uh, I was uh, born and raised in San Francisco uh, in the 1970s and 80s. Um, which was basically a time when the uh, uh, the gleam of the summer of love had started to fade. Um, uh, so I, I think that I, I had uh, kind of embedded in my my background 
um, a belief in uh, social movements, I guess, is maybe the, the kind of best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I went into design and then uh, branding kind of serendipitously. I uh, uh, applied to UCLA in the design program because my, my high school guidance counselor suggested I, I probably would not be able to get in in a normal program. Um, so I sought to, to kind of add some fuel to my resume, if you will, or to my application so that um, uh, I, I wasn't relying on SAT scores and, and grades alone. Uh, what, what year is this that you're applying to UCLA? Uh, this was uh, 1989, I want to say. Um, okay. Because I graduated in 90. So yeah, it must have been 89. Okay. Yeah, so in 89, uh, do you recall your SAT scores and what your grades were like? That's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was, uh, uh, grades were, were high 3.0s. I want to say something like, you know, 3.9 or, or thereabouts. Okay. And then uh, I think the SAT. We won't hold you to it. You could. Uh, yeah, I actually don't even, I don't even remember what the, what the scale is anymore. But, but the, the numbers like, what, what, yeah, what, what is the maximum you can get on? I think, yeah, back then I think it was 1600 or something. Yeah, okay. So, so I feel like I was, I was somewhere in the like 1400s on, mm-hmm. uh, on each of the, like higher in the, in the math than I was in English. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, was, I definitely was not kind of maxing out on everything. Um, but I was also, you know, I was, I was doing pretty well. And yeah. it, was, it was, you know, coming out of a, uh, a uh, private college prep school. So I see, you know, um, I guess relatively competitive in that sense. Mm-hmm. I, I asked that because I, I wanted to give some context uh, and there's a, you don't know this about me, but I applied to UCLA, UCLA as well under the design program. I, I was <laughs> rightfully rejected from the program. So I was like, I wonder what you had to do to get into school. And I think there's a portfolio requirement as well, right? Yeah, yeah, that was actually why I chose to apply. And then mm-hmm. when I got there, I found out that it was super selective, and it was sort of like so. Basically, I had a really bad uh, high school guidance counselor. But um, yeah, maybe not. Maybe not because you are where you are, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think it was it was more serendipity than it had anything to do with with. Uh, um, uh, her efforts, but uh, uh, right. So, so I, I basically I, I, I looked at, at at applying to UCLA, and I thought, okay, well, if if I can't get in on grades and scores alone, what else can I do? Right. And I and at that point, I, I was a big you know fan of the arts and art stu- I was I was a you know I, I really liked art class at in, at school, and um, and so I, I sort of thought, well, I, I've got you know some work here. Why not? Um, and, uh, so that, that was, that was, uh, that was what I did. And I will say that most of the work that I showed was, uh, in the fine arts category. So it was not, you know, graphic design per se, Mm -hmm. although there was probably some photography that I included, but I've always been interested in the arts. My, my, my father, uh, actually is a longtime museum director. So he, uh, he actually, was was early on at the De Young Museum in San Francisco, and then he also established the Cantor Center or the the, the kind of new uh, iteration of the the Cantor Center for uh, the Arts at, at Stanford University. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, I had I had the visual arts were sort of like a, a huge part of my upbringing. Perfect. Okay, so let's jump forward a little bit. I, I needed to get that out for my own edification. Okay, you're UCLA now. You you finished your design program, right? Right, right. Well, so like uh, uh, the design program there, I think you probably know this is is actually pretty general. It's not mm-hmm. uh, it's not focused in the way that a you know a typical art school would be. So you're you're required to take things like ceramics and uh, photography in addition to you know the kind of um, uh, color theory and 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 the kind of standard design mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, so it wasn't actually until my junior year that I encountered a professor by the name of Bill Brown, uh, who was sort of notorious in the school for being a hard ass. And so you know, uh, everyone was like, "Oh yeah, you know that that's that's a hard class." When I entered that class, my eyes sort of lit up. I was like, "Oh man, this is what I've been waiting for. Uh, somebody that's going to push me." In this category, which was you know graphic design and typography, that was sort of new to me, right? Like, so I, I had spent all this time with color theory and you know still life drawing and photography and ceramics and blah blah blah, and even you know some some nice stuff like like uh, spatial planning and environmental design and uh, you know some of those other things that that are I still you know kind of leverage today, if you will, in my career. But um, anyway. Uh, uh, Bill Brown was, uh, he, he was, he was teaching, um, the kind of, uh, two, uh, maybe, maybe there are a few others, but the two kind of primary courses in graphic design, uh, at UCLA. And I, I really, uh, responded well to his, you know, kind of strict way of being, I guess in part, because I, I sort of have always balanced this analytical and creative side. Uh, or these these analytical and creative sides, so he, he you know that that was kind of why graphic design was so appealing because it it you know you deal with geometry, you deal with uh, ratios and and other mathematical principles at the same time as dealing with a, a lot more of the kind of intuitive artistic principles that the fine arts you know kind of offer up. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was this really nice balance for me. It's the, the pieces are starting to fall into place in my head right now as to why you are where you are. There so you it's, it's okay. very interesting. Like, yeah, you're, you're, you're kind of drawing or designing the contours of this thing and I'm starting to get the shape and then uh, hopefully we keep filling in the pieces. Right. Okay. Yeah, all right. So you, you grew up around art and culture, uh, at least from uh, what we've just learned from your father, you, you get into the design program and you also grew up in, in a time and a place where social movements and cultural awareness was kind of a big part of who you are. And right. then you get into a general design program with lots of things in humanities, probably. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the things that I think is interesting about the UCLA program, at least the things that I knew about, you know, years ago, is that there's there's a broader understanding of art and humanities and not right. as concentrated of a design program, but it's both its strength and its weakness, right? Right, right. In, in fact, Bill Brown also taught at Art Center uh, and he would often say to us, I really like teaching the UCLA students because they have that uh, kind of breadth of awareness. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Okay, so let's jump forward to the next major milestone and maybe we'll just hit one more before we get into the Minerva project. Yeah, great. So I, I've got kind of a couple actually, but I'll, okay. I'll try and be Go quick ahead. with them. All right. So, so uh, upon graduation, uh, this is a time, you know, 
early 90s. I, I graduated in 94 uh, when the World Wide Web, and I sort of say that now in quotes, but, you know, mm-hmm. at that point it was, it was uh, all caps or, you know, inter- you know uh, initial caps and, and all of that. So, so it, it was very much a, a thing. And it was just emerging as, as a medium. Right. Um, and uh, I found that super exciting as well. Not so much because of the technical aspects of it, but because it, it offered this kind of greenfield opportunity to do exploration and uh, investigation uh, in, in the, the uh, graphic uh, arts and design. So quick jump, I, I moved to Portland, Oregon with my, my then girlfriend uh, and a, a, a good friend of ours was also uh, living up there. He and I got together and put together, he, he, was, he was kind of early on interested in HTML and uh, some of the kind of other uh, early coding languages. He's, he's now a software engineer. And uh, we, we put together this uh, zine, you know, the, uh, sort of just to explore what, uh, what was possible uh, with, um, with the arts and design and, and, the, and technology uh, limitations on, on the web. And that zine then got me uh, an interview at a internet marketing firm that was one of the first internet marketing firms in the world. And uh, I became their very first uh, creative there. And, you know, in those heady days, it was sort of easy to just say what your title should be. So I I think I was design director, uh, basically right out of school. Uh, so, um, that was a really formative experience because I was, I was working with, you know, a, a mix of, of organizations and companies, but, but many of them were, at, were fortune five and 100 corporations like Sony. Uh, we worked with, uh, K2 sports on some of their first website. Um, anyway, so, so it was sort of, uh, taking some of these experiments we had done, uh, early on with our zine and uh, applying them in a more formal and more kind of practical way, if you will, uh, for these clients. Fast forward uh, just another couple of years and uh, my girlfriend and I and our friend uh, that, that we had done that zine with uh, decided that we were going to actually start our own agency and we moved back to San Francisco to do that. And this sort of dovetailed perfectly with a lot of the the dot-com uh, startups. And so we had sort of a, a, a lot of uh, market opportunity there and were able to establish ourselves uh, relatively quickly. In fact, there was a, a New York Times article back then, I think this was probably 96, that mentioned uh, our firm's name along with uh, Organic and you know some of the, the firms that became major players in, in that space. Uh, we remained... Uh, very small and, and boutique uh, for the entirety of, of that firm's existence. But that then led to uh, an engagement at Landor. And that was my first tour of duty there. When the dot-com bubble burst, I, uh, I was laid off from Landor, went out on my own and, and did a, a bunch of uh, work for a number of years uh, out on my own and then and starting other little boutique agencies. And then I was hired again uh, this time as a creative director back at Landor, uh, where I was for another, I think, five years. And in that time, I moved toward the latter part of that time. I moved from the, the design practice into the 
naming and writing practice, and then into uh, the strategy practice. So I was able to get a, a pretty broad exposure to all of those practices and obviously met a lot of colleagues and worked with a lot of uh, really kind of global, big global firms uh, on, on kind of all aspects of, uh, of branding consultancy. Mm. I have a bunch of questions to ask you. Your second tour of duty at Landor, is that when you started to move from a design practitioner or creative director into like the strategic space? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I was always, uh, my title was always creative director. Um, and I guess because I had uh, worked at, as a, basically as a, a brand consultant my entire career, a design consultant in primarily smaller uh, boutique shops, I sort of had to wear multiple hats always. Uh, so uh, I, I think many of the um, uh, the folks at Landor started to recognize that I had these other capabilities, and so I was asked uh, first. And this is this is four years in as a creative director in the design practice. I was asked by the head of the the naming and writing group there to join her group because she saw that I had some some capabilities in in that area, and she wanted to actually begin to bridge the gaps between the two silos because it, it had been sort of relatively siloed where, uh, you know, the naming and writing group were sort of treated as uh, an afterthought or a forethought, but the, the integration with the design group wasn't as, as good as it might have been. Mm -hmm. so, so she asked me to join that group in order to kind of bridge that gap uh, because of my, my deep experience in the design practice. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now how did you go from that to getting involved with the Minerva project? Uh, right at the end of my time at Landor, uh, it was sort of a time of, um, I'm going to say, uncertainty at the organization because we had had a number of, um, uh, you know, this is actually just after uh, the um, the Great Recession, right? So. Uh, I, I think Landor was still uh, at that point kind of struggling to find its footing as a global agency again, right? I mean, it's it's gone through you know multiple reinventions in its in its history, its long history, right? And this was sort of one of those times. So we we were sort of in a in a time of of a little bit of uncertainty, and there was some discontent in the morale, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I, I was just sort of looking for what's next, but I think maybe more importantly. I had uh, my my two kids, and was really starting to think about uh, our collective future, right? And seeing all these these major uh, complex challenges that they would be facing in their lifetimes, and that we're already facing now, and it, it you know sort of gave me pause. I, I wanted to I wanted to do something with my career and my capabilities that I felt was, I guess, more focused and more intentionally helpful to their futures, right? So, so I, I wanted to sort of get away from helping, uh, you know, Chevron uh, make more money or uh, uh, Microsoft sell more packages of Windows uh, of their Windows software and and into something that that really felt like it was substantial and meaningful 
And, and I think also importantly, I wanted to look at what it was like to go in-house and really build something instead of, you know, uh, what, what I had done my entire career, which was, you know, develop, uh, I think, great solutions, hopefully. Uh, in, in many cases, they were, they were, they were good, I think, uh, mm-hmm. uh, for clients and basically say, here, here you go. Now you, you go ahead and, and implement and, and make it happen for the, the next bit. And where, where I, I actually wanted to, to work at implementing it and, mm-hmm. and see what that, see what that took. Mm-hmm. So that there were, I guess, these sort of uh, multiple kind of strands that came together. And the, the kind of basic pivot here was that uh, I, I went out to lunch with a colleague and we were just kept kvetching, talking about the uh, future. He also has uh, kids. And we were just talking about, you know, what next? What was kind of interesting? And education... Uh, consistently kept coming up for me uh, and him, actually, frankly, as well. Anyway, the next day, he forwarded me a LinkedIn uh, message from one of his former colleagues uh, who became my boss. Uh, so it was it was this wow. really kind of serendipitous, like, you know, let's just throw out this, you know, idea, oh, education uh, to the universe and it was almost like immediate, right? Yeah. <laughs> this immediate kind of uh, response came back. And anyway, when she was describing Minerva to me, it was just checking all of these boxes, right? It was a, a, a greenfield opportunity to kind of uh, create a brand from scratch. Uh, not only that, it had to be a premium brand that was going to be able to go head to head with the Ivy League, <laughs> right? So, so right. huge challenge uh, and, and therefore exciting. It was in this space that was uh, really meaningful, something that I believed in. You know, I really believe that education is fundamental to uh, helping us solve these these complex challenges that I'm talking about. Right? I mean, everything from global warming to you know global pandemics. Right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it, it basically checked all these boxes. It was it was a really exciting opportunity. I really. Uh, I really believed in the model that was uh, being described, the, the the concept that was being described, and at that point, it was very much just that uh, a concept on on a series of slides that the founder had developed in order to to get uh, funding. So yeah, it was it was it was really exciting, and I I kind of didn't really give it uh, a second thought. It, it sounded like it was a really perfect uh, kind of jump, and and you know I figured. Look, I've got all of these great connections in the branding and design world. If this thing is a an abject failure in a year, I can go back to what I've been doing, and all will be fine. Thankfully, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Are you getting in pre-launch, or had the school already been yeah. launched? Pre-launch. Uh, well, so yeah, so so I was the tenth employee. I was the first hire by. Uh, my boss, who is the the chief experience officer, mm-hmm. and this what we we had funding and a nascent team. Uh, the kind of largest portion of the team was was the uh, the software engineers, um, but we did have uh, the beginnings of an outreach team. We had the beginnings of the marketing and experience team, uh, of which I was a, a, a member. And we had the beginnings of the academic team. Mm. So, you know, we, we had some of the key team members in place, 
but we did not have the program developed or designed fully. Uh, we definitely did not have students yet. We had a website that was absolutely uh, horrible to look at and horrible even in its, uh, in its messaging, but it was enough to kind of uh, recruit the, the early team members. So that was actually one of my, my very first uh, undertakings was to establish the, the baseline and mm-hmm. for the brand. Okay, so you, you, there, our audience are probably are like, what the heck are they talking about? So I did go through and read a bunch of the things and watched a few videos uh, on, on the website itself. So let me, let me go through the high-level stuff, and then, and then you fill in the gaps for us, the things that you don't see on the site, right? Perfect. So the Minerva Project is a pretty radical, uh, innovative approach to teaching. And the best way to describe that, I think, is a college without campus. And, and the idea is you can get tuition, room, and board for around $32,000 a year, which is roughly half the cost of a comparable school. It's a four-year school, and you live together in some residential building. And what happens is you begin in San Francisco, I believe, and then you get to live in places like Berlin, Buenos Aires, Seoul, uh, Hyder, I don't even know how to say that, Hyderabad? Hyderabad, yeah. Hyderabad, London, and then Taipei, I believe, and then you go back to San Francisco. So it's taking on something that uh, you probably could not have predicted about how we learn and the rising cost of tuition and dealing with lots of issues and in, in, and uh, inclusion. And there, there's a, there's, it, it's almost like you guys saw what is happening in 2020 back in 2012. Yeah. Uh, we, we like to say right, right, right now that, that we're 12 years ahead of plan mm-hmm. back in, in 2011, 2012, we were looking out and thinking this was going to take 20 years really to, to gain traction. And uh, the speed at which we've been able to do what we've done, uh, I, I still find remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's right. It, it, it is a, uh, a four-year program. Uh, students move around the world in the global residential rotation. And I think importantly, that, that aspect for the undergrads is, is critical. But the things that, that really span uh, all things Minerva are our approach to teaching and uh, the way that we uh, uh, structure curricula. Can you expand on that? Yes, for sure. So, so the pedagogical approach uh, we, we call fully active learning. And what that's about is uh, basically taking the flipped classroom model and you know, kind of doubling down on that and making sure that every single class that you're in, uh, you know, and every time you're in a, in a classroom space, the, the students are engaged uh, to the fullest extent possible. So lectures are uh, forbidden. Um, in fact, we have technological uh, means of limiting the time that, that the professors can actually speak uh, at, in any given string. And the, the, all of the lesson plans are designed to engage students in discussion, collaborative work, debate, uh, et cetera. So, so it's, it's really a, a way of uh, taking what the science of learning uh, has demonstrated and applying it in an educational model that, that hadn't been done before. Okay, so as a person who grew up in an American public education system, uh, this sounds very foreign and very different. Like my son goes to a private school, they use the Harkness Harkness method, and it's very discussion based, and you sit around in very small circles, and it, it's about asking questions. 
and yeah. that memorization. And so there's no place to hide. There's no right. way that you can go through the program and not make it all the way through without having form study habits, learning habits, and a, a point of view into the world. It sounds That's similar, right? right? Very discussion-based. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually not dissimilar at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it, That aspect, I think some of the more progressive, especially actually at the uh, K through 12 level, uh, some of the more pro progressive schools have, have already kind of adopted some of those techniques. Mm -hmm. uh, on the curriculum side, and this, this is another area that is uh, kind of fundamentally different, especially in the higher education world. On the curriculum side, uh, it is about developing structured connectivity across disciplines and making sure that uh, student assessment is based upon uh, really intentional skill development. So instead of, oh, you learned that content uh, or, you know, to, to your earlier point, memorize that fact, this is about you are demonstrating the use of that skill or that habit in your, in your coursework. And really importantly, over time, across courses and across the, the, the four-year experience. Can you give us an example? Can, can we take like a class uh, or a, a subject where you're like, okay, so this is how the lecture or non-lecture would work? Yeah. These are yeah, the kinds of things they're doing. And then this is how they'll be evaluated. Yeah, sure. So, so the the classes, I think, importantly as well, we haven't mentioned this yet, but the, the classes are all uh, online. So mm -hmm. that was another thing that we sort of, uh, I guess, preempted. <laughs> um, but um, uh, and, and that that online platform actually facilitates a lot of these 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 techniques and and uh, and the curricular uh, structure and assessments. So, okay, so I. I uh, I join class and I can be at a cafe. I can be in my, uh, my dorm room in the residence hall. I can be, uh, you know, back home uh, because I'm visiting parents, wh whatever it is. So there, there's a, a great deal of flexibility that the, uh, that, that uh, online environment uh, allows. It also allows our, our professors to, to join from anywhere in the world. So we're able to get top talent uh, and, and not worry about where they live. So I, I join class. I log in. And I see uh, the listing of my classes, uh, click the class I'm going to attend and come in. And it's, it's like, I guess I'd say like Zoom on steroids. You, you, mm -hmm. you see, you know, uh, at, at the top level, you see the thumbnails of, of the other students that are with you in your, in your class, uh, as well as the, the professor that is facilitating the class. At the same time, you can, you can split the screen and have uh, documents uh, or um, uh, slide decks that are uh, helping to kind of inform the structure of the class. Uh, often classes will start with a poll that looks at what students took away from their pre-class uh, work, whether that was reading or, or some other kind of assignment. And that sort of establishes the baseline for uh, the discussion to follow. And then the, the professor's will facilitate a series of activities, often discussions, um, but there are also uh, things, you know, like in, in our computational sciences courses, they'll do coding, um, co collaborative coding work. They might, you know, look at a, a piece of text and mark that up uh, in breakout groups, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's, each class is different 
and is uh, uh, designed, as I said, to keep the students engaged. Uh, so there's there's not a lot of redundancy, but there are a lot of the the kind of same uh, techniques that the professors use, which are things like polling, uh, collaborative documents, uh, you know, micro debates and discussion in breakouts that uh, the professors can basically go to each breakout and observe uh, what's going on in each of those breakouts and, and actually provide commentary or, or feedback in real time. So, so that's sort of uh, a real kind of rough sketch of, of the, uh, the classroom experience. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Io Seligman. If you're a small business owner, this is for you because running a business is just plain hard sometimes. Endless to-do lists, employees to take care of, and your ever-present bottom line. So first of all, kudos to you for staying on top of it. Now, I want to tell you about Gusto. Gusto built an easier and more affordable way to manage payroll, benefits, and all that other really exciting stuff you love to do. They help over 100,000 businesses with tasks like automated payroll tax filing, simple direct deposits, free health insurance administration, 401ks, onboarding tools, you get where I'm going here. You name it, Gusto does it, and they keep it easy. They also really care about the small business owners that they work with. And I can attest to that because I happen to use Gusto for my own business. True story. Their support team is attentive and helpful, and since money can be tight right now, you'll even get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com future and start setting up your business today. You'll see what I mean when I say easy, because it really is. Again, that's three months of free payroll at gusto.com slash future. Welcome back to our conversation with Io Seligman. In terms of evaluation, the coding one makes a lot of sense to me because you it doesn't need to be multiple choice. You give them a problem and it either does it or it doesn't, right? And you have to demonstrate that via a project. How else, what other examples uh, can you cite that are are like this, where the teacher, yeah. instructor, professor can have a pretty fair understanding, like you do understand the concepts? Yeah, right. Okay, so so let me get into the learning outcomes, what we, mm-hmm. what we call in the, um, uh, in the, the undergraduate and graduate uh, programs are, are HCs, our habits of mind and foundational concepts. So that's a set of roughly 80 uh, different habits and concepts, like, like they sound, but, but you can think of them as, as kind of micro skills. For example, uh, when thinking about uh, a macro skill like problem solving, uh, a micro skill that fits into that is what we would call uh, the break it down uh, concept. So that's like taking a more complex problem and breaking it down into constituent parts that can then be solved you know, more uh, effectively uh, in an individual way. So you can imagine uh, an assignment where students are given a text and said, okay, so, so read this text and use the hashtag uh, break it down concept to uh, determine how the author has structured his or her argument. Similarly, in a, a course that, that uh, might be looking at actually like, like, like a, a, a computational sciences course, look at this you know, macro goal that we want to achieve with the code and use the hashtag break it down 
concept to structure your approach to solving that challenge in a way that you can write discrete pieces of code uh, to solve it. Mm. Does that does that make sense? It makes total sense, and it's uh, it's very interesting the parallels to what this, the school was doing and that process to something that I've been using to teach my kids. Uh, and I say kids like I have two children, but also when I was teaching at Art Center, we would just sit there and reverse engineer everything. And I think yeah. complex problems are hard to understand. But if right. you can distill them down to their essence and you boil it down, we call it boiling it down and breaking it into the five ingredients, mm-hmm. you're able to like, okay, that I can take on. And if that's still too big, you boil that down again until right. you can get it to a point in which I can solve that problem now. So we're really teaching people how to learn essentially and how to reverse engineer or understand anything that they put their mind to. Right, right. And that that's in the in the kind of uh, space of problem solving. But you can also, uh, well, I'll give you another example. Uh, we have a whole other category of uh, kind of macro skills around uh, bias, you know, which obviously can relate to problem solving as well. But but uh, our students are taught how to identify bias uh, and and various types, as as you you may know. Um, the psychological uh, and, and sociological texts really, you know, and, and science uh, really look at a, a whole breadth of biases that we have, both, the, both that are kind of uh, intentional and unintentional. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, this, this kind of category of things uh, includes a number of those kind of micro uh, skills, if you will, mm-hmm. that, are, that are really aimed at identifying, mitigating, and uh, even utilizing biases, uh, like in a, in in a persuasive argument, for example. Mm. Okay, here's another thing, uh, and it's going to get really heady. You guys, we're talking about education, and and one person's on the inside, and we're doing a kind of a renegade style. But here's something I pulled from the site, and then I want to map it to something a little bit more grounded, so everybody can hopefully stay with us here. Great. So here's the three interconnected features about the way that you guys do what you do cross-contextual curricular scaffolding. And mm-hmm. scaffolding is breaking it down. And cross-context is making sure you apply this across a bunch of different things so that you really truly have mastery over it, right? In which concepts are repeated with increasing complexity across diverse contexts. Two, fully active learning, where students are engaged in every class session. And three, systematic formative feedback and assessment. We've talked about this. All facilitated through an advanced virtual learning environment, your Zoom on steroids. And I think you guys call this forum. Now, that's right. The context. My son went to uh, an amazing private school where they they basically implement these concepts, but I'll explain it in a way I hope everybody can understand. So when they talk about everything is cross-context, it's like you don't go to chemistry class, you don't just go to math class, and then you don't go to Spanish. So what they have them do is they they grow a garden and they learn the Spanish names of the fruits and vegetables that they're growing. And then they make a recipe and and then they're able to cook things. So they're learning about culture, Spanish culture and language, while understanding chemistry baked into that. That's this right. This is the kind of integrated learning. So you're not even aware that you're learning these things. It just becomes a part of the activity and what you're doing. That is, in its essence, like a, like a very simple way to understand it. Did I get yeah, that? Yeah, right? that's 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 great. I mean, it's that's that's at at, at the K through twelve level, that is a, a a great way of of describing it, and you can just imagine that it gets more uh, sophisticated as you kind of move up the the ladder of your educational progress. 
So yeah, the 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 contextualization of those ideas is critical. And then what we look at as our kind of gold standard is what we call transfer, which is when uh, a student is able to take something that they've learned in one context, you know, like you're, in your example, the uh, chemistry in cooking, and apply it to something that is completely novel and completely different. Mm-hmm. So uh, the idea maybe that heat causes reactions, uh, maybe that, become, that, that gets applied to the life sciences, right? And, right. and global warming. Just making that up, mm-hmm. uh, but that's exactly right. So, so that idea of cross-contextual scaffolding is not just about breaking it down, but it's also about building uh, upon each of the kind of steps that any student takes. Right. So uh, that as they learn, things become increasingly complex. The challenges become increasingly complex, and that they're able to make more informed choices, and this is at the university level, more informed choices about their path forward. Mm-hmm. There, there's a bunch of things I, I have to ask you here. It's like, okay, I'm getting super excited here. So the way that I see this is whoever or whomever designs the curriculum, that's where the genius is and how all these classes or subjects are interconnected and how they relate to each other and how they build up in complexity over time. That's right. One of the beautiful things about a facilitator as a, as a professor is the professor, if the, if the structure is designed correctly of the prompts and the polls and the questions that are being asked of each student and the, the reading material, then what is the role of the professor in this case? Because my understanding then is that you don't need subject matter experts. You need somebody who's curious, who's open and encouraging. Uh, but is that the case? Or do you really need subject matter experts at this point once it's been designed so carefully like the way you've done it? Yeah, no, this is a great question. So, so it's a little of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, we, what we look for within our professors, first and foremost, is people that love to teach mm. uh, and, and that, that are passionate about teaching because that, we believe, is actually one of the fundamental failings of higher education in general, that, that higher education has biased toward research uh, scholarship and um, therefore biased away from the actual education of students, uh, actual in-class learning. So uh, that, that's what we look for first and foremost. That said, uh, the, the subject matter expertise is crucial as our students uh, advance in their, in their, in their programs, uh, in the program, right? So once they've determined their uh, their their major and then their concentration within that major, they are reliant on uh, people that actually know what they're talking about at uh, a very uh, high degree in in those subjects. So in the natural sciences, when we talk about earth systems, we really want somebody that knows that subject matter at at a level of of great uh, mastery. Mm-hmm. So so it, it starts general. And the, f- the first year coursework is designed to provide a breadth of, of exposure and to introduce those 80 some odd uh, habits and concepts that I mentioned earlier. And then as they progress, the second year, uh, they, they start to, they, they, as they progress, they focus further. And, and by the time they're in their fourth years, they're actually creating novel products 
and and that's kind of what what we call the capstone project uh, which takes up a portion of their third and most of their fourth year and then is the the kind of uh, it's almost like a thesis uh, that you would find in a graduate program uh, that they they uh, defend at the end of their mm. their fourth year very interesting and now you mentioned this uh, how many different majors uh, are there in the in in your school yeah so that, that's that's another area where we're a little bit un- unconventional mm-hmm. uh, the majors themselves align with what we call the schools or the colleges uh, so there are five majors um, natural sciences social sciences computational sciences arts and humanities and then business so those those within each of those five majors is a set of I believe there are nine each uh, of concentrations that um, actually follow this really interesting, and this again is sort of the genius that you mentioned before, which by the way, I had <laughs> zero to do with, uh, <laughs> uh, where, where they're, they're organized as a matrix with one axis being scale, so micro to macro, and another axis, axis being uh, specificity. So uh, uh, for example, in the business um, college, uh, we've got new business ventures, scalable growth, and enterprise management. So that would be one of the axes, right? So moving along from like new to complex, large enterprise, uh, you know, startup to, to complex, large enterprise. And then the other axis is um, management, finance, and managing operational complexity. Another example, maybe maybe more clear in the natural sciences, one axis is the, that scale I was talking about, molecules and atoms, cells and organisms, Earth's systems, so that's the micro to macro, and then uh, the kind of theoretical to applied, uh, theoretical foundations of natural sciences, research analyses in natural science, and then problem solving in complex systems. Mm. Do you start off on the micro level and then move your way up, or is it the other way around? Is it all at the same time? No. So, so the concentrations uh, are something that the students select one or two of, and the the beauty of that matrix uh, means that they can actually double concentrate relatively easily mm. because there's there's quite a lot of overlap in their. Um, uh, in their coursework, so it's, I, 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 I misspoke earlier. There are six concentrations within each of the okay. the majors, mm-hmm. um, and then there's there's overlap in the coursework uh, among them. All right, uh, I'm going to try to do a lot in the next uh, ten minutes or so that we have left together, and uh, let's see if we can do this. If you're okay. listening to this as a parent or as somebody who's considering a, a program like yours, it, it sounds pretty radical. But we're not even done talking about the things that are different. When you say the tuition, room, and board is about $32,000 and that's less than half, you have to start thinking, well, where'd the other half go? And so the college without campus has certain things. And you can look at it as pros and cons. There's there's no cafeteria. There's no sports field. There's no specialty rooms and facilities to do things, right? You live together in a building. And the the, the pro to this, according to uh, to Ben Nelson, is that the students get to learn to be independent and to figure out how to navigate in a place. And that's much better for their own personal development than, say, 
joining a specific club. And some of the students who graduate say this about the program, that it helped them to become more mature, to take initiative, to develop a level of ingenuity and ultimately confidence by figuring things out on their own. What else are the differences that, I mean, because it just doesn't go nowhere. You're cutting out the things that you believe are not important. That might be some classes that are filler classes that maybe not be really related to the out, the learning outcome that you have and facilities. What else are you removing? Yeah, well, th- those are those are two of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the third, uh, I think, major kind of cost center for many universities is uh, tenured professorships. Um, so, so we also do not offer tenured professorships, mm-hmm. um, which which runs in line with that that uh, philosophy that professors for undergraduates should be good teachers, where tenured professors tend to be uh, researchers that don't uh, teach much or at all. Um, so, so that that's another kind of cost center. I think importantly, when we talk about uh, what we uh, what we don't do. Uh, on the campus, uh, one of the things that we also philosophically believe is that the campus environment does a few things, right? It, it sort of protects, but it also coddles, right? It also kind of shelters and shields from the real world. And so as as you were explaining, our undergraduates, as soon as they arrive, and by the way, they they come from all over the world. We have uh, only roughly 20% of our uh, undergraduate classes are uh, from the United States uh, or North America. Um, as soon as they arrive in San Francisco, they're, they're sort of, they, they've got to be adults right away, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a little bit of trial by fire. And for that reason, it's not perfect for everyone. In fact, it's not right for, for, for many. But for those students that are hyper-driven uh, and really, really want that, uh, that level of independence and that level of, you know, kind of accelerated uh, development and mature, maturation, uh, it's, 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 it's uh, excellent. Um, anyway, I, I was going to say that one of the things that, that we also fundamental, fundamentally believe about the, the college with no campus is actually this idea that the city is a better campus than any university can offer, even those with enormous funding like like the the Ivy League uh, or you know others others that have mm-hmm. have have a, a lot of money uh, the the city provides especially if it's a if it's a really kind of uh, major cosmopolitan uh, uh, center provides any number of better opportunities than a university can provide on its campus right so Think of the library. Think of you know the movie theater. Think of the the gymnasium. Think of uh, the the sporting arena. Uh, you know uh, all of those things in a major city are even better, right? You you right. get a you get an even better assortment, wider assortment of gym types, of uh, eateries, uh, of of uh, you know all all of those things that you sort of get spoon fed, if you will, when you're, when you're living on a campus. Mm -hmm. So in a way, then the core parts you provide, and then the rest as the individual can decide for themselves is a la carte and they just do it as they want. Right. Exactly. And, and and that's how the, 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 um, the cost is, is reduced. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, I think 
I, I want to end this on like a big business discussion with you in that it is very hard to launch a university like this and to get people enrolled and to get them to trust you. And it, the whole system, I think, from an outsider's point of view, it looks like you have to keep a consistent flow of students in there. Otherwise, the system starts to fall apart. But that's maybe right. I'm wrong. So no, that's right. Okay. So how did you guys pilot this and even attract students? Because it sounds risky and people don't like risk. Yeah. No, it's a great question. I, th I think for one thing, I, I talked a little bit about the the type of student that is attracted to this. Mm -hmm. And it is it is a, a kind of pioneering mindset. And, and certainly in that uh, those early days when we were uh, identifying our first class, uh, they were all, you know, hyper pioneers, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, we part of the way that we attracted them was by uh, uh, presenting it as a, a co-founding. They, they were helping us establish this university. Um, and, and that did attract a, a, uh, a set of students that, that was really uh, keen to kind of reinvent education alongside us. That said, there was also a lot of work that went into audience um, segmentation and targeting, uh, as well as all of the uh, design and messaging uh, that, that went around the, the um, materials and, and website uh, that we used to, to do that outreach. As well, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about uh, experience design, thinking about how can we create experiences and even you know, kind of uh, small magical moments uh, in this journey, especially at the outset for, for at, at that point, but, but we've continued this, this kind of way of thinking to this day, and we continue to challenge ourselves in this way. But how, how could we kind of create some magical moments that showed these students that uh, were willing to maybe take this risk, that we were kind of in it together? We weren't spoon feeding them anything, and we were uh, very much committed to making sure that this was an exciting time for them and, and was going to be engaging in the ways that they uh, hoped it would be and anticipated it would be, and that we were basically going to be there for them and with mm -hmm. them, mm -hmm. co-collaborating or co-building co and, and collaborating mm -hmm. uh, on the design and, and development of it. And I think I read that you've now graduated two classes so far? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. how are they faring in the world? Because this is one very interesting experiment that can have great ramifications, both, I mean, mostly positive uh, into how other universities need to start looking at themselves, especially today. So how, how are they competing in the real world? Are they being sought after? What kind of positions are they having? Do you have any data on that yet? We're gathering it still, and I don't personally have any at my fingertips. Mm -hmm. uh, but I will say anecdotally uh, that that first class of students with whom I'm, I'm relatively close and stay in touch, they have secured uh, some of the most impressive uh, jobs out of school that, that I've ever heard of. Uh, mm -hmm as well as a number of the, the most coveted uh, graduate programs. So we've got, I think we've got a student that's at uh, Harvard Medical School. We've got a number of students that have started their own, uh, you know, founded their own companies or own organizations. One of, one of the students with whom I'm very close is, is now working as a, uh, in the content group at uh, the National Geographic uh, Channel. 
um, and and she and I were were uh, or she she worked on on my team a lot during her her time at Minerva. So uh, she was always very passionate about media and content. Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, I guess like suffice to say, it's going exceptionally well. Um, we're uh, we're gathering that data and we'll have that available. Um, uh, in short order. In fact, we're, we're, we're looking to get that out there in the next few months. Right. Cause you, you may have people who are going to criticize you, but it's at the end of the day, it's kind of hard to argue with results, right? That's right. At That's the end right. of the day. Cause it's all, I, I think the whole idea of the program is it's, it's what you walk away with in terms of the things that these students can demonstrate in the real world. Now, well, let, let me let me interject a, a concept in there at this point because because results is also you know sort of a, a subjective concept, right? And and so one of the things that we're doing as well is to also redefine what's important, right? So instead of saying, oh, what salary did they walk away with or you know graduate into, we're actually looking at what what kind of an impact are they making. Right or are they are they kind of uh, preparing to make, um, and and especially as that relates to uh, societal good or civic engagement. Um, so so we're also trying to kind of look at the those results in mm-hmm. a way that maybe more align with the kind of triple bottom line thinking right. uh, that that corporations talk about. Mm-hmm. I, I remember now I was going to ask you just really quickly uh, what kind of degree do they graduate with. Ah, yeah. So, so it's it's either a bachelor of arts or a bachelor of sciences degree. Mm-hmm. So that'll probably put some students and parents at ease because they're like, "What kind of hippy dippy school is this?" And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get a piece of paper. What do, what do we get here? So that those things are transferable or equivalent to whoever your co- competition is right now, right? Oh yeah, it, it, it's yeah. a fully accredited program, and the the degrees are. Uh, Fully accredited. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we've we've also got a, a master's program that that uh, is also fully accredited. Mm-hmm. The the timing of this conversation couldn't be more ideal because I literally just did a live stream yesterday, a panel discussion with like the future of education, and uh, we were talking about lots of things. But it sounds like you're actually doing the kinds of things that we were talking about as a concept. You've already made reality in that you've created this hybrid, and I think it's a hybrid because. The learning part, remote, online, but then there is the physical connection. Yeah. And and that's something that people still crave. And the and the thing that uh, online schools don't typically do is to make sure that the learning outcome is what it's supposed to be. And that's what universities have traditionally done a very good job at is they, they spend the resources, the time and energy to make sure theoretically by the time you get done with school, you're you've learned what you're supposed to learn. And you're doing it and you're cutting the costs. And uh, I read a bunch of things and we don't have to get into it, but in terms of like inclusion, the scholarships and, and doing everything that you can, financial aid to help people from diverse backgrounds to be a part of this educational model. Yeah, that's right. And, and in fact, our admissions process was also a, a major focus of reinvention when we began and it's been refined over time. But the whole goal was to actually do away with things that have uh, bias as as a, a kind of fundamental part of them. The SAT we talked about at the beginning mm-hmm. uh, is is one of those things. It's it's been shown repeatedly that the SAT is a much better measure of uh, uh, a student's ability to get uh, uh, coaching and help, which is a, obviously 
benefited by, by financial means than it is of actual uh, capability. So we don't take any of those standardized tests. In fact, we've developed a battery of uh, uh, assessments that we give our applicants uh, that are designed specifically to measure their ways of thinking, how mm -hmm. they think, mm -hmm. um, and uh, are done in such a way that people can't prepare for them. Uh, so that that sort of eliminates that that element of the bias. And um, because there, uh, I think there are roughly five categories, maybe six of these assessments. They also measure different types of uh, uh, capability. Mm -hmm. Uh, similarly, as you as you discussed, the uh, the cost to apply is is uh, uh, very low, um, and uh, we do a lot in terms of uh, financial aid. Mm -hmm. Okay, so maybe the last question, and probably the the right way to end end our conversation together today, which is, you guys are doing something interesting, and you've been doing this for for years. As some schools are just very lately waking up to the situation. And I'm a big believer in this, that COVID hasn't changed anything. It's just accelerated everything. So they, yeah. maybe schools had been cruising on this idea that uh, they have decades to figure the stuff out. And then all of a sudden it comes to a crashing halt. What kind of lesson or message do you want to share with some of those people? Because I think it's over 5,000 colleges and universities in the United States very few of them are pushing the envelope or trying to to rethink the system, to reimagine it, to redesign it the way you are. What kind of message can you send out to them? Because you you are one school. If more schools can learn from what you're doing, I think we as a society benefit. What's your message to them? Yeah, a couple of things. I, I think first and foremost, try not to look at this time as a, as a problem, uh, but instead as an opportunity, mm -hmm. uh, uh, because it really is that. Of course, that means a lot of work, uh, which which uh, is maybe the part of my, my my second part of my message, which is that we're here to help. Uh, we actually have uh, a number of universities that we're working very closely with, and now we've even got a high school program, the Minerva Baccalaureate, uh, that we've introduced with with two uh, two partners as well. Uh, that's starting up this fall. Uh, but we're working with a number of universities already to help them uh, innovate and uh, uh, reform uh, in these ways, right? So, so that they can be more resilient, uh, but also more effective in, in their teaching methodologies. Where can somebody go to find out who to talk to if, if they're in a lower education or higher ed and they want to actually pick your brain and, and have a meaningful discussion about this. Who do they reach out to and where do they go? Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for asking. So uh, MinervaProject.com uh, is the website that uh, uh, frames our um, uh, strategic partnerships work. The uh, bulk of our conversation was focused on uh, the Minerva schools at KGI, which is our university program. Uh, and that can be that can be found at minerva.kgi.edu. But uh, if you're interested, if if any of your listeners are interested in exploring conversations about these strategic partnerships, I, I would point them to minervaproject.com, and there okay. you can find uh, a number of our uh, uh, strategic partnership uh, leads. Mm. 
I I think I could sit here and talk to you for a really long time about this, and I do appreciate your time. I think it was very enlightening. I'm 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 energized myself, uh, trying to think about how we could, in the way that we teach people, what lessons we can learn. And I wasn't asking necessarily for the audience; I was asking for myself too. <laughs> and I, I wish you guys nothing but the best, and I hope that you're able to make a real dent in this thing because it's a real problem. It's a real, real big problem, uh, especially as the tuition keeps keep going up and the, the jobs that people are promised aren't really there anymore. And, and it's so lopsided that I think it's going to come crashing down if somebody doesn't figure it out. So I'm rooting for you. I'm going to be looking uh, from um, the, the bleachers kind of rooting you on and hoping that this is a movement and, and this is the beginning of that. Yeah, I'm confident that it is, and I really, really appreciate that, Chris. And I've, 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 I've appreciated our conversation today too. It's you've, you've asked some some great questions, and I think you've got a really good understanding of uh, the complexities of what it is we're <laughs> we're trying to do, uh, because it is definitely not a simple offering. But then, how could it be? Right, <laughs> it's a big problem. It can't be a simple conversation, right? Exactly. I'm Io Seligman, and you are listening to the future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.